KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. Today I'm talking with Ruja Mohassasi. She's an Iranian-born poet and educator. She is a McDowell Fellow and an MFA graduate of Pacific University in Oregon. Her debut collection, When Your Sky Runs Into Mine, was the winner of the 22nd Annual Elixir Poetry Award. Her poems and reviews have appeared in Narrative, Poet Lore, Rhino, Calyx, Adroit, New Letters, Poetry Northwest, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Welcome, Ruja. Thank you, Dion. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Your debut collection is making quite a splash. I see that you're doing lots of readings and interviews all over the place. It's been, the book is being really well received. It's going, it's doing well. I'm very happy it's for been it. A, is it a bit of a whirlwind? A bit. It was, uh, especially the East Coast. I had uh, an East Coast tour and I got COVID in the, in between, uh, between DC and New York. And, <laughs> but I had friends to stay with and friends were delivering soup and it was wonderful. It was all, all good. It was fun. How long was that recovery? Well, I took Paxlovid and that did speed things up. And, um, but I, I had, I had, I actually, it was perfect. The timing, I had 10 days in between my DC and New York readings. And that's when I got COVID. Oh my <laughs> so gosh. Perfect timing. I got to recover and I didn't get to visit all the places I wanted to visit in DC, but I stayed in bed. And you'd be amazed that Paxlovid really works. I mean, it, it works until it doesn't. It. I felt like I was fine, so I went out and had a martini, and then I had a relapse. <laughs> so, watch out if you take it. The relapse is is a real thing. <laughs> okay, see, audience, what you can learn here at the Hive Poetry Collective. We we learn about all sorts of stuff. Poetry can take you anywhere. Well, as I usually do when I have someone on the hive, is I have them bring in a poem by someone who they are inspired by, who has written a poem that resonates with them. And you brought in a Sylvia Plath poem called Black Rook in Rainy Weather. Uh, let's see, a rook is a black bird, right? It's a black kind of bird, probably a British bird. But right. I'm I'm not sure if it's uh, a raven or um the crow. I think it's probably the raven, but it's one of those blackbirds. Okay, some kind of corvid, I think is what they're called. Okay. And do you want to tell us anything about this poem before you read it? Or do you want to jump right in? I think I, I let's read it first. Okay. Can we read it first? Well, maybe I can say that it's um, 
one of the earlier poems of Sylvia Plath, and it was, I think, in her first collection, the, um, okay. the Colossus. Okay. Black Rook in Rainy Weather. On the stiff twig up there hunches a wet black rook, arranging and rearranging its feathers in the rain. I do not expect a miracle or an accident to set the sight on fire in my eye nor seek any more in the desultory weather some design, but let spotted leaves fall as they fall without ceremony or portent. Although I admit I desire occasionally some backtalk from the mute sky, I can't honestly complain. A certain minor light may still lean incandescent out of kitchen table or chair, as if a celestial burning took possession of the most obtuse objects now and then thus hallowing an interval otherwise inconsequent by bestowing largesse, honor, one might say love. At any rate, I now walk wary, for it could happen even in this dull, ruinous landscape, skeptical yet politic, ignorant of whatever angel may choose to flare suddenly at my elbow. I only know that a rook ordering its black feathers can so shine as to seize my senses, haul my eyelids up, and grant a brief respite from fear of total neutrality. With luck, trekking stubborn through the season of fatigue, I shall patch together a content of sorts. Miracles occur, if you care to call these spasmodic tricks of radiance miracles. The wait's begun again, the long wait for the angel, for that rare, random descent. Thank you. That was Ruja Mahasesi reading a Sylvia Plath poem, Black Rook in Rainy Weather. And uh, I had a lot that I really noted in this poem that I thought really stood out for me. But when you were reading it this time, what struck me was the wait's begun again, the long wait for the angel for that rare random descent. And you know, clearly she's waiting for a lyric moment, for a moment of happiness, or maybe even for a poem. But that noun descent also feels a little bit foreboding, like foreshadowing her demise a little bit, that something of beauty would be a descent, because we kind of associate descent with descent into something dark or, you know, Hades in the classical sense. So did you feel that in that ending there? Absolutely. Yes. I think the descent is also, you know, how you have in, uh, especially in Christianity, there is always the descent of the, of the angel, right? The angel comes down and brings, either uh, news or, or something, but, and in this, and it's always a male, obviously the angel is always male, the angel that comes. And in this case, it's, it's as if, you know, she has this poetic vision, right? She has this moment where the ordinary is kind of rendered sublime. And what, what is heartbreaking for me is that she doesn't see that it is her own 
way of looking at the world. She she attributes it to something external, to something that she has no power over. She feels so powerless. She knows that she says, now I have to wait for another moment. There is this long wait. She doesn't, I think she, I have a feeling that you, you see so much, you understand so much about Sylvia Plath in this poem. See that, you know, you feel her depression. You feel that she was in, you know, an emotionally difficult place, obviously. And, you know, there's so many context clues to that, you know, the season of fatigue and all of that. And and she's waiting for something to come from the outside and fix it. Whereas yeah. you know, while she has this incredible gift, you know, I mean, she's just looking at a bird and this bird, you know, that's, that's, that's poetry right there. It's her poetic vision, but she's not aware of it. She's not aware of, of that gift that she has. And for me that I kind of identify with that, you know, I, I, you know, to try to be grateful for the gift of poetry, for having that poetic vision. You know, those of us who are poets, it's truly a gift. Or just being alive and appreciating the moment too. Just, just being in the moment and being, being content. It's, it's funny because she uses that word content, but you don't know if it's content, packed together a content, packed together a content. You don't, you don't know which it is, but you know, if it's content, it's more like a poem. And if it's content, it's more existential. But yes, you're right. This poem in a way does conjure the Annunciation, which is of course the angel appearing to Mary and telling her that what telling her what's up, like removing her, uh, removing her agency and uh, declaring her her destiny and her pain, really, and joy, you know, it's not completely out of her hands. So it does, it does conjure that. I, I love the opening because it's, it's what a, it's a great, clear orienting. It's so orienting, you, you know, exactly what's going on. So you get that clear feeling that she's getting. And then the rest of the poem is a little harder to untangle. It's a little more chewy and you have to work on it just like you go through life without those beautiful moments. Um, so that opening on the stiff twig up there, hunches a black, a wet black rook, arranging and rearranging its feathers in the rain. That's so clear. It's so clear. but And then there's this turn that you, you take with her, even though it's a total leap. She's looking at the rook and then all of a sudden, I don't expect a miracle. Or, and then, so you're like, okay, miracle. And then she goes, or an accident. So it's, it's like whiplash, <laughs> miracle, accident. Right. And she has, but you know that it's really what she wants. She's, she's, she's got this sort of almost blasé tone right to the poem it's like I don't expect anything but it is what I'm continuously hoping for is this moment of grace or this moment of beauty or for the moment to sort of transform itself you know you know I really relate to that <laughs> I mean is that is it only me like especially during COVID um but even now 
I'll be going for a walk or something. And all of a sudden, I'm, I live in such a beautiful place. And all of a sudden I'll be overcome with beauty and completely in the moment. And all my troubles just kind of melt away. And it's an experience. It's a scintillating experience. And yeah, I mean, I kind of live for those moments. I, I understand what she's talking about here. I mean, it might be an esoteric thing. It might be about poetry, but it also could just be about life. We all are waiting Absolutely. for those moments of joy. Absolutely. But I think what what I feel like is we have the power, I feel, to make those moments happen, to be in the moment and choose to to savor every moment. And um, and it's so hard to do, but often, I think in this case, and, and very often you feel like you don't have any control over that, over your internal emotional state, right? She's like, and there's this, there are also these clues of, you know, domestic scenes for her, you know, the, the light may still lean incandescent out of kitchen table or chair. So you have this, you know, image of domesticity and, and I think it's, there is also a lot about, you know, what it means, what it meant at that time to be female. You know, there was, there's, there's a kind of helplessness there, a learned helplessness. Whereas, you know, when you look at it now for us to read this just breaks my heart sort of, Yeah. Um, you know, for someone who killed herself so young. Right. And that's such a gift and. Over a man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um really beautiful poem. And, you know, it is hard to always feel joyful, but poetry like this, really, you you share in the moment with the poet, that moment of whatever angel makes you used to flare suddenly at my angle, elbow. I only know that a rook ordering its fe black feathers can so shine as to seize my senses, haul my eyelids up and grant a brief respite from fear of total neutrality. Right. That indifference, yeah. that sort of dull state that she wants to get out of. She's, I guess, looking for connection, right? Yeah. And you you just so, she's so, the language is a little difficult. So you kind of have to work at it because her syntax is so not in the ordinary. But when you do, it's worth it because you feel that with her. So yay for poetry and yay for Sylvia Plath. I I, if any of you read, it was one of uh, Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell's books that he said that if only they hadn't had that kind of gas in England, there would not have been so many suicides. It's sort of like guns here, that when they remove that gas, all of the huge number of suicides decreased. So who knows? <laughs> It was a particular kind of gas that was particularly deadly or something. I didn't know. That. It was very easy to commit suicide in England during that time when they used that kind of gas. It's a lot harder now. Um, so people don't choose to commit suicide with gas. You, people use what's available. Right now we have other options, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah we have other options. Okay. Well, anyway, um, happy to move on. To that <laughs> move <subject>. on right? <laughs> um, so I just thought I'd start with the first poem in your book, your book, by the way, when your sky runs into mine, which is the name of one of the poems in the book, which we might get to, but I kind of doubt it. Um, 
because we're going to try to read as many poems as we can. And I just want to read your first poem, one, two, three, four, five, six lines long, a short one, just to sort of set the scene of what this book is about. Could you go ahead and read Iran Politics in First Grade? Iran Politics in First Grade. The television is louder. Inside it, grown-ups bang into one another like flies caught in a fly trap, their mouths agape with static. Some lean like swallows on a downed power line and tug at a rope tied to his neck. Eventually, he will stagger off the pedestal onto grass. I wrote, yikes, really sets the scene <laughs> after that poem. I've heard it said that the first poem in a collection should be about death. Really? Yeah. And my first poem in my collection is about death. I So we want to tell us first, uh, set the scene a little bit about what's going on in this poem and then Maybe tell us why you chose this poem to be the first poem in your collection. Sure. So, right, it is about death. It's about the death of um, Reza Shah Pahlavi. Um, he was the monarch at, at, during the, uh, at the time of the 1978-79 revolution. Um, and he was taken off the throne and his monarchy replaced with the Islamic Republic that is in place now after 45 years, still there. And, um, and this image here of his statue being pulled off the pedestal was, I saw it on TV as a child and it was, just such a, it was unbelievable to watch the chaos around the statue and, and people um, had tied a rope to the statue and the way it just fell over was something that went so deep for me in my memory. And um, so that's what gave rise to this poem is that image, what I saw on TV. I did not see it in person. I was not there. Um, it just shows you the power of a symbol. A symbol can be so, so very powerful. Right, right. And, um, you know, he really was the, um, he was the symbol of the monarchy. And, um, and I think right now, if you, you know, if you ask many of the, the people who were out there on the streets, during the revolution, they they regret the choices that they made. Um, and so there are many, I mean, my family and, um, and our acquaintances and just, um, they were not anti-Shah, they were not anti-regime. Uh, but there were many who were hoping for, basically for democracy in the country. And that was, um, the reason why they wanted the monarchy toppled, and they did not foresee that we would find ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves today. Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a momentous moment, uh, a huge turn in the country that a step backward, really, 
Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Brexit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Only not as, you know, Brexit is not as intense, but, you know, I think a lot of people in England are regretting that choice. I guess that the will of the people is not always the wisest, wisest will. Revolutions are always tricky. You know, they always leave such disaster behind them. So, yeah. Yeah. When I read this poem, I did not, I thought it was the, the, the fact that the noose is around the neck makes it feel it's like the person is actually being noosed at that moment. I love the opening. The television is louder. Inside it, grown-ups bang into one another like flies caught in a fly trap. That's sort of like how people were trapped by the choices that were made. Right. It's also just the image of the chaos that I was watching on TV. Literally, it just it was it was chaos. I mean, everyone was you know, they had no clue what was what was happening. How old were you? I was uh, I think six or seven or mm -hmm. I think yeah. six. Yeah, when I was six or seven, Kennedy was shot, mm -hmm. and we were watching it all on TV. And, and like, what's going on? You're just so young, and you have no idea. And you just all the adults are freaking out. So you catch that really good. And you say your name, uh, you're not your name. You say your, your age in first grade. So we do know how young you are. Let's go on to another poem in, I believe it's in the first section. You divided this book into sections. And do you want to talk a little bit about the arc of the book and how you chose the sections in, in your book, of course, when your sky runs into mine? Sure. So I, um, I, you know, just went about writing the poems, but then when I came to the step of putting them together into a collection, they kind of naturally fell into this chronological order. And I realized I had a memoir sort of on my hands. And um, so they are organized uh, in that way chronologically. So the first section is about childhood in Iran and uh, and about war one year after the uh, toppling of the Pahlavi monarchy the uh, Iran-Iraq war started and it lasted eight years and I was there for the first four years of the war so there are some poems that are about war in that section and, and then the second section is about immigration um, about immigration and emigrating from um, from the country um, to Europe and um, and I think there are poems that explore, especially the um, the psychic kind of um, clash of the cultures in a pre-adolescent psyche, just the, uh, the the damage or the trauma of that, and 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 the reckoning of of this displacement and uh and then there are sections um of adulthood in various places i lived in china for some years and um for 14 years and 
Right. So just, and there's some, what I call my rage and rant poems. <laughs> I've got some angry poems towards the, uh, the latter section of the book. And uh, those poems are actually, I, I debated whether to keep them in the book or not, but I decided to keep them because they, they are, uh, you know, they, they represent a part of my experience as an immigrant growing up as an immigrant and my response to my environment. And, um, and I'm glad I kept them actually, because they are poems that speak to many young people. When I was touring, when I going on the book tour at, at reading at universities, the college students especially responded to those poems. Yeah. Young people today are not happy about the direction of things. Okay, well, you've gotten around, you have a lot to talk about. So uh, it makes for an interesting read. Why don't we read this next one in the first section? It's called Spared. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and read that one? Spared. To create a little flower is the labor of ages, William Blake. Even the outage is for our benefit, they cut the lights to ease our lives, hide the dread that betrays us to the children. We borrow into dark, leave no sign of life above, block after block, deep under, as if we had agreed to be buried. The siren rushes out of the night, turns the corner violently past curfew into hollow alleys, wailing in presage of pending death. Jostled out of our chores, we scramble for each other, children still curled over tomorrow's schoolwork, quickly smother the discreet flames of oil lamps. Dying smoke shadows them down the stairwell, a prayer on every lip. Yet for all its concern, the siren cannot talk us out of our illusions. Carrying on in basements, we recount those lies that comfort us, that children smile for a reason, that the smell of fresh baked lavosh and the break of dawn are inseparable. With the first light, we emerge into the aftermath, trace the bomber's path, to the raised intersection. We measure there the neighbor's catastrophe, the circumference of her wound, the number of orphans and their limbs, the depth of her grief and the blast greater. We talk of stockpiling potatoes, though it's a sin to be so frightened. At sunset, a child recites an extra surah, ends the Magra prayer with a supplication. She's thorough, omits no name, lest they be not spared. Madar Jun, Maman Jun, Baba Jun, Leila Jun, Hanum Jun, Kale Jun, Amu Jun, Haran Jun, Azal Jun, Aziz Jun, Aziz Jun. Thank you. That was Ruja Muhasasi reading from her book, when your sky runs into mine, that was spared, which I assume was about the Iran-Iraq war and the bombardment of where you were living. I guess it's okay for me to say you and not the speaker because you're saying this is a memoir. Um, Absolutely, uh, yes. It is It's. It is. Um, very much the, the the book is all pretty much biographical and uh, there are I play with a little bit with uh, writing in the voice of uh, my uncle 
um, who is a major figure who appears in this book. The book is like frastic and it's inspired. About 90% of the poems are inspired by his art. He's the one who facilitated my immigration from Iran. Mm. Um, but this poem here is there was a period uh, during the war that was called the War of the Cities, where the two countries were bombing the cities. And um, and so we would we you know we would get a heads up that the bombers would be coming and the entire blocks and electricity would get shut off and we'd go into the basement. And uh, this poem is 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 about you know the child trying when doing praying and trying to gather all her loved ones into her prayer and hope that, you know, spare all of them because they're not here. Not everybody's here. Like grandma is someplace else and cousins are someplace else. And Yeah. It's that little incantation at the end, the prayer it's when I hear it spoken, it's so incantatory and beautiful. It, what does June mean? It means dear. Oh, so you're just saying all their names and then saying dear after that's that's really beautiful. Let me just say really quickly that this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Uh, this is Dion O'Reilly, and I'm the Hive Poetry Collective, and I'm talking to Ruja Mahasasi about her book, When Your Sky Runs Into Mine. So we talk of stockpiling potatoes, though it's a sin to be so frightened. So what kind of cognitive dissonance must that be to have something so terrifying going on Yet it's a sin to be so frightened. Right. Because I think, you know, it's no one really should be exposed to these kind of horrors. You know, it truly is a sin. And especially um, for children to have to experience these things. It's really unpardonable. Yeah, but it's so much a part of the human experience now, starting with wars using air warfare going back to i suppose the first world war but certainly the second and the blitzkrieg and all that it is just a and i'm sure that it's you know still what's going on in iraq and afghanistan it's probably going on in sudan it, it's such a part of life in the 20th and the 21st century Right. And it's it's getting somehow more and more terrifying because it there is a lot of um, um, manless uh, drones, you know, drones. Right, drones and things, just a lot of just pressing buttons. So you don't you don't really see um, the carnage. You don't have to you don't you don't you don't see people face to face. And this war, the Iran Iraq war was still kind of a World War One war. You know, people went and fought in person um, and there was, you know, chemical weapons were used and things, but it was still a, somewhat of a human scale. But um, now war is 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 totally different scale, which is terrifying, right? You know, Huge. it's it's funny that uh, I just remembered this and, uh, you, know, you know, I also went to PACU and I can remember sitting on the bus going up to that celebration we always had up at the vineyard at the end of the, the residencies and sitting next to a man who was either a chaplain or a therapist. 
And he worked with people somewhere in California, I think it was. And there was like this big warehouse and it was full of people operating drones in some war. And they were killing people like video games. My goodness. And he worked with them because they were so struggling with having to do that. That reminds me of, do you know that experiment, Milgram's experiment that was conducted in the 60s or so? It was this experiment where I'll just, I'll try to be brief about it because I don't think we want to take so much time with it. But this experiment that they were trying to show how, um, you know, the Nazis, how, how Germans did what they did. And there's an experimenter and the experimentee and the experimenter is in the position of authority and asking a person to press a button to administer this electric shock to someone who's sitting behind the curtain there. And, um, and it was astonishing to see people would go ahead and administer the highest uh, degree voltage of shocks just because the experimenter said, I am telling you to do it. And the person would say, well, you know, I'm not taking any responsibility for this. You know, no, no, I'm telling you to do it. So you must do it. Very few actually said, I don't care. I'm not going to do this and took responsibility for um, pressing that button. You know, so it was called, I think, obedience to authority was the name of the experiment. Wow. Well, it's good, always... it's good to know about stuff like that. So you can think to yourself, if I'm ever in that situation, but we are in that situation in a way right now. Okay. Um, well, in a way, this is what this country, this poem is about. It's spared. And it's about the people who are surviving. Uh, so, and I think you describe it really well. With the first light, we emerge into the aftermath, trace the bomber's path to the raised intersection. We measure there the neighbor's catastrophe the circumference of her wound, the number of orphans and their limbs, the depth of her grief and the blast crater. And then you switch to, we talk of stockpiling potatoes, so it's a sin to be so frightened. So it's, you look at it and then you go into thinking about your own survival. And then God, what, what, a, what a whiplash for the mind. And then you feel like it's a sin to be frightened. So you see other people dying, you think about your own survival, and then you feel guilt. So you you kind of go through what happens to people when they're survivors mm-hmm. in this poem. Also, I was thinking um, this whole scene of we borrow into dark, leave no sign of life above. And later on, you said, uh, yeah, for all its concern, the siren cannot talk us out of our illusions, carrying on in basements, we recount those lies that comfort us. And I I think that you literally have people going underground, kind of going into denial, which is a good metaphor for what our minds do, how we can be experiencing trauma or frightening things. And we go down into our mind because you You just can't stand that sort of Sylvia Plath lyric moment when it's that frightening. So you you go underground and then you spend the rest of your life unearthing that again. 
Just, right, that's a coping mechanism, right? Yeah. It just—it's uh, the only way. I think that's 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 how survival works at all different levels. You just need to block certain things out and uh, and carry on until you have a moment of respite. Yeah, what that famous quote by the Romantic poet: "The poetry is emotion observed at a distance." It's uh, I don't know. It's one of the romantics that that said that, and I I think who was it Tennyson? I think it might have been Tennyson or something said that. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean that's what we're doing. We're just seeking to understand ourselves in poetry. Right. For me, this book has really been a way of healing, of uh, taking account of the damage, and um, and owning it. And also recognizing that none of it was my fault because I think children take blame very easily. And, um, and just it's, it has been, I think the burden of, you know, this, the war and everything doesn't also only fall on, you know, on, on one shoulder, really what you carry, you're carrying your family, your history, you know, all the, the burden, there is a lot to um, transform and come to terms with. And um, yeah, like, and you, you kind of have to come to terms with it or you're in a closet, it's like being in the closet, you know? Right, right. it's very silencing, right? It's, uh, it's, I mean, trauma, as certain kinds of trauma, there's, it's they silence your voice and you you go into hiding and it takes a lifetime i think to dig your way out and to try to find your sense of empowerment and carve space for yourself well there are just so many ways that we're not allowed to be what we are like like you know we're not allowed to be fat we're not allowed not to have teeth. Like we're not allowed to, I don't know, be a little rude, to be angry, to be so to be sorrowful. We're not allowed to be too tall, too short. And it's just like there's just so much stuff that we're not allowed to be. And you just gotta ask yourself, why? Like, who made this up? Right. There's <laughs> I can't remember the exact lines, but Rumi says something to the effect that. Just don't listen to, don't bother with what other people are saying and just you know, go ahead and do your own thing. And I think that's uh, you have that's to get advice along. that you really need to, I, I try to take to heart because you can waste a, a lifetime thinking yeah. about what the expectations are, right. what other people's expectations are of you. And, and especially culturally, what culture, if you don't fit within a certain um, culture of a host country trying so hard to fit in is, you know, it, it can be really um, incapac incapacitating, you know, it can, it can freeze you emotionally. Yeah. And so one, one needs to, one needs to move on. <laughs> yeah. I think poetry helps us do that. Okay. Let's um, go ahead and read. I don't know what, what section I'm in by now, um, but I just like this one. It's, oh, it must be in the first section because I think it's still in Iran. By age 10, I understood the heft of fabrics 
let's see. There's some words in here that I thought maybe we should. Uh, I wrote down Karbala, I think it's in here. Is that a word that we kind of need to know before we read it? Or am I hallucinating? Oh, it's the last word in the poem. Mm-hmm. What, could you just tell us what that is, what Karbala is? Or is um, that give sure. it well, let me tell you first, the poem itself is about, I think it may be a little bit difficult to understand if without me explaining a little bit, that it's about the moment when after the regime change, the um, the uh, dunning of the Chador became sort of, uh, I guess the Chador became weaponized. The way the Chador was worn, the color of it and all that, you know, you could tell out in public spaces who was pro-regime and who was anti-regime by the way they wore their Chador. And, um, and so this is what this is about. And I, as a child, I was, I was very devout. I used to like to pray with my grandmother and and I used to like to wear the chador and just, you know, the chadors were, it was almost a very sexy garment, actually. You know, it had, it had, you know, usually chadors had flowers on them and the way, you know, you could just some of, you know, you could wear a silk chador and the way it would slip. And it was just very sensual, an extremely sensual garment that we would play dress up. Kids would play dress up with chadors and things. And what did they look like? It's really just a half circle that you drape over you and you hold it in place in the, you know, with your hands, there is no, there's nothing tied to anything. It's just a half circle that um, you drape over your head and, and it. um, Wraps around you, wraps around your body. Not really. I mean, you hold it, Uh you know, and under your chin or in different ways and. Like a scarf. More. Yes, but it goes it 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 goes all the way down to your feet. Okay. So right. And um right, and Karbala is uh I believe it's it's uh, it's in Iraq. And uh in this in this poem, the clay of Karbala is referring to the dirt of Karbala that is made into little um they're called, I forget actually what they're called even in Farsi, but it's when you pray, it's this tamped kind of hardened dirt that when you pray, you touch your forehead oh. to this, I think it's called the mo. And uh, Karbala, there was the battle of Karbala with, with uh, I'm not quite up on my Quranic on the religion, but there was a battle of Karbala. I don't remember if it's with the prophet, and it's a it's was it very significant battle for the Shiites, the Shi- uh, Muslim Shiites. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and read? By age ten, I understood the heft of fabrics. Nice title. Thank you. By age 10, I understood the heft of fabrics and the significance of black after the revolution. I had no way to know what to feel, but the woman folded inside those cascading yards of darkness that transported her like a deluge down the sidewalks of Tehran, the hem kicked up flourishing with dirty spray, with every step the sharp edge of a handbag, her elbow jutted at a sudden angle like a hooded blade. 
We raised the arms of our navy manteau to guide the passing breeze to our armpits and watched the chador prevail. Overlapped under the chin, the obsidian length falling weighted like the curtain that segregated sexes at weddings. At noon, where we wilted in queue for a cool bottle of Coke, inching our way toward the shade of the shop awning, the chador shone unruffled, brilliant with the synthetic glare of a raven. If a man brushed past, it hit one eye, both lips at a crooked angle, we'd eat our words mid-sentence and stare, our parents jerking us away, worried we'd fall into a harm worse than a manhole. A wrong even they could not save us from. From behind the soul seam receded askance like pursed lips, the hem furtive, not flaring, not the petal-stitched hand-sewn fringe of a homemade chador, the awkward half-circle stamped with flowers, but sudden in its zeal, the surreptitious weed had now appeared as in Solomon's temple fully fledged, too deep to uproot. At home we played dress-up, sashayed from parlor to kitchen, pulling the coy cloth over our heads, it slipped like a caress, exciting our hair with static. I'd almost outgrown my favorite, Covered in lilies, it hovered a full foot from the floor like an angel and kept still as I bowed to kiss, then touch my brow to the fragrant clay of Karbala. That was Ruja Mohassasi reading from her book, When Your Sky Runs Into Mine. This is Dion O'Reilly. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. The Hive also presents live readings every other month at Bookshop Santa Cruz. We get poets from all over the country. If you're interested in attending these events, go to our website, hivepoetry.org, and check out our events page. We always have amazing people coming in. So I, while you were reading this, I was looking at pictures of Chador's on my phone, and um most of the pictures, the women are completely covered. Is right. Right. And uh, one thing I was thinking, well, I want to talk about the language, but one thing I was thinking about when I, when I read this is that I've always wondered what it would be like to wear one of these and walk down the streets. And this is one of the first descriptions of what it really looks like, feels like. And it was kind of loving, you know, it was a loving description. And I think that in the West, sometimes we go, oh, that's so terrible. Women are covered. And something that has occurred to me on several occasions was, I, I, I think that I have thought it would be nice just to not have the pressure <laughs> and to go out in public completely covered. <laughs> Since, you know, growing up, like you were saying, always feeling judged, not tall enough, not short enough, not thin enough, you know, not curvy enough. I'm scarred. I have lots of scars. And um, to go out with the, also without the danger of feeling like I'm attracting sexual assault. <clears throat> and um, sometimes I want to be hidden. And... <clears throat> But this poem about it is, is also, there's something coy about it. So it, I had an interesting mix of emotions reading this poem. 
Right. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that, that that's what is evoking, because that is what I was trying to show that the problem is not the hijab, right? The hijab is, is truly a, a beautiful garment that women can choose to, as you said, sometimes you, you, you wish to cover, um, you know, yourself and, and the chador also, it's, the way you need to hold it in place, it needs continuous, actually, it needs continuous attention. So it's a, it's, it's a very sensual thing. So otherwise it would slip and uh, it would reveal different parts of you and, and all of that. And, um, and, but the chador becomes a symbol of oppression in, you know, in this poem, the chador that I loved suddenly I'm looking, the poem is from the point of view of children. It's like it was me and my cousins and um, going out, for instance, to, to get a drink and, and, and you suddenly you see and you're frightened by those women who are not only wearing the black chador, but when, the, when they let go for a moment underneath, you also see more black. So they have another headscarf on underneath and they have like a, a manteau underneath and, and long pants. So there's like as children, we did not wear the chador. We, the, um, the, the required dress became a long manteau with pants with a headscarf. And, um, whereas, so you could, you, you could really see people's, you know, on the street, people's political proclivities, you know, depending on how they wore this garment. And I, and it's really became a garment to oppress women with. And um, it's this, I uh, think yes, you, you must be, you must have followed the uh, recent protests and uprisings in Iran when were women. And it started with women, you know, saying that they, they no longer wanted to wear the hijab. And this movement actually started long, long, some, some years ago where one woman just went and stood in the public space and put her chador, I mean, not her chador, but her headscarf on a stick and held it up in a public public place. And um, and then women, other women began to follow and, and share such posts of themselves in social media and things. So it's a, it's a movement. And actually the day after the hijab was made mandatory in, uh, I think it was, I'm not sure, 1979 or 1980, women were on the street in Tehran, huge protests of women, you know, asking for, for this to be rescinded. And, and so they did back off. They said, okay, so only in certain places women will have to cover. And then gradually they extended to cover all public spaces. And anytime a woman steps out of her home, now she needs to be covered. What is it about women's bodies that terrify people? But the language in this poem, I just want to touch on it. I had no way to know what to feel about the woman folded inside those cascading yards of darkness that transport her like a deluge down the streets of Tehran. I just think that's really lovely. And also at the end, um, there's something about that 
the sole seam receded askance like pursed lips. The seam like pursed lips. It's just the, yeah, like you said, almost like the sexiness of this thing that is supposed to make women not sexy. I find that probably the most interesting thing. I guess sort of like Victorian, you know, they everyone was so uptight about sex, but all the furniture looked like hips and legs with little skirts on it. I think it's like, no matter how hard you try, like the, the shape is, sex is not going to go away just because you think it should. I guess, I guess that like appetites are not going to go away just because you go on a diet when people are what they are. Uh, but I love the part. Yeah, the part about dressing up. At home, we play dress up, sashayed from parlor to kitchen, pulling the coy cloth over our heads. It slipped like a caress. Exciting. Our hair was static. I'd almost outgrown my favorite. Covered in lilies, it hovered a full foot from the floor like an angel. I love that. Full foot from the floor like an angel and kept still as I bowed to kiss then touch my brow to the fragrant clay of Karbala. I think I said Karbala wrong. We don't have much time left. See how quickly this, this zips by. So is there a one that you would like to read as probably a final poem that we, we had Straniera, we had All About Me. Um, we had... Um, eggplants. Eggplants is nice. Go mm -hmm. read eggplants. If you like, but you know, All About Me is a poem I have never read before. Okay, let's read that uh, one. That's about when you arrived in the country, right? Right. And so maybe let's try that because I've never read it before and curious what it would be like. Okay, so we'll read it and then we'll have just a little bit of time to talk about it when you're done. All about me. If I sit silently, I have sinned. Muhammad Musaddiq. Oh, my feline soil. Sorry, let's start again. <laughs> All about me. If I sit silently, I have sinned. Muhammad Musaddiq. Oh, my feline soul. When he asked the child in the front row to tell all about herself, too, sur toi, Monsieur Pichon, couldn't have known she'd chew on the Swiss fountain pen and draw a blank, though she could have told him he was her favorite and le nom de toutes les fleurs, colors and every desperate part of her body she knew to name without checking, the way she knew her country, the cat hunched unwell on the world map, she had color-coded the legend enough times, shaded counties and fleuves, she could account for the neighbors, for war chafing at the pinched throat should yet to hear purr. The inflamed eye, the great lake of Ormia now shrunk to a pained salt water slit. She traced up the proud swell of its chest in brown, the western border matted with the dried blood of boys. Oh, my soul, you shy away even now, though I catch you glinting in the dark of my eyes, had you shown us from a plastic tiara on her brow steadied her hand, though she slouched homesick at her desk. She would have scribed then with the flourish of a Persian calligrapher, a catalog of herself, warrior-like, she would have guarded to reveal only that, 
which could be fairly rendered into a foreign tongue of a profile in relief of rivers and veins, she would have begun to relate to the curious Monsieur Pichon how she had personally seen the queen back home, occupied with her charge, a country and its mountain chains, plain as dry bread, but for gorse, thriving, and dusty butterflies resting on unmarked trails. She would have illustrated a picture of herself pressed flat as a paper moon to make room for the good shepherd, his flock tumbling along, dropping little pellets, the green scent of wintering foothills caught in a cumulus of fleece. Had you been there, she would have spun in her baluchi skirt, stitched with mirrors and demi-moons to show and tell, and the children would have reached for the shards of light dancing on the walls, not shunt her like a castaway, but you, my oh young and foolish soul, forgot your song, your tongue. Without you, the girl waited, and in the minute remaining of the period, she scribbled, je ne sais pas qui je suis. That was Ruja Mohasasi reading from her book, When Your Sky Runs Into Mine. This is Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 98.7 FM. Please check us out on Facebook. Look for the Hive Poetry, Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. And come to our website, hivepoetry.org. Go to our events page to look at all the events that we hold, usually at Bookshop Santa Cruz. Wonderful poets from all around the country coming in to read there. I have so enjoyed talking to you today, Ruja. We have like maybe three minutes left. Do you want to talk a little bit about your current projects? Sure. Thank you so much, Diane, for having me. Um, I guess these days I am I'm trying to see what's next. Uh, I was writing I was writing for a while about the uh, women-led uh, protests that were occurring in Iran, and and they still are. It's still ongoing. Um, and I'm still following, see what, what's happening next. We're all hopeful. And also I'm just, um, being open to various, whatever other projects that will come my way. Um, like Sylvia Plath waiting for the moment of. <laughs> right. It's wonderful. All the possibilities. It's just an amazing gift. You have such a rich history to call on. It's for your work and it's such important work. I'm so glad you're doing it. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you. Okay. We're going to tune out here. You can always tune in at eight o'clock on KSQD and listen to the Hive Poetry Collective or listen to us and subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms. This is Deanna Riley from the Hive Poetry Collective. Signing out at KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. <laughs>